0: Registration is now open for Connect Groups. You can sign up for the next um, uh, session, and you can do that in the lobby by going to the kiosk. You can see Pastor Kevin. He's at the back just waiting to sign you up, and uh, you can let us know in a variety of ways. Go to the website. Just let us know you want to be involved, and we'll find a way to get you there. So I think everybody should be connected in some fashion to a group of believers that you're accountable to and interact with, and uh, one of the best ways to do that is through our connect group so please join us and be a part of that registration signups begin today well we're beginning a new series this week that i've titled rescue the perishing and the title comes from a song that was written years ago by fanny crosby now music has changed over time prior to integrity music hosanna music almost all of our singing was testimonial and directed man to man. Think about what we sang, there's power in the blood, there's victory in Jesus, I am on my way to heaven, amazing grace, blessed assurance. All the songs we sang were very much horizontal and there's a a place for that and those are all good. But in Hosanna's era, worship began to change to vertical. It was more about God, I exalt thee, as that shift changes. I think there's value in both, and I think there are times to look back and remember what we used to challenge each other with, and one of the great songwriters of all time was Fanny Crosby. She composed nearly 8,500 texts in her lifetime, including 1,000 that were undiscovered until 1972, and she wrote two songs that I know that you'd be familiar with, To God Be the Glory and Blessed Assurance, The story of Fanny Crosby includes her being blind. When she was six weeks old, she had an eye infection, and a doctor who wasn't a doctor treated her, and the result was not curing the infection but leaving her blind. That same year, her father died. She was raised by her mother and grandmother, but in 1850, Fanny J. Crosby made a commitment of her life to Jesus at Chelsea Methodist Episcopal Church in New York City. And in 1869, she wrote this song that I want you to hear this morning, Rescue the Perishing. She was ministering at a mission in New York City. She was concerned about the spiritual well-being of the men that were there. And she pleaded with the men that if there was someone, quote, who had wandered from his mother's home and teaching, to please come and see her after the service. A young man did come up to Fanny after the service and said he would like to see his mother in heaven, but he knew that the way he was living uh, had convinced him that that would not be possible. They spent some intense prayer together, and everyone attending the service joined in in prayer, and he finally accepted God's justifying grace. That night, Fanny Crosby went home and wrote the words to this song, Rescue the Perishing. It's one of the few gospel hymns that express our imperative to minister to our neighbors and to reach the lost. The first stanza includes these commands. Rescue, care, snatch, weep, lift, and tell. The third stanza captures the sinner's heart. And I want you to particularly listen to it. The sinner's heart is expressed in what it is like and what it could be. The tempter has crushed any feelings of hope or joy. However, grace can restore. Crosby writes in the fourth stanza that it is our duty to rescue those in trouble we're not to sit idly by and watch our neighbors suffer for if we pray to God for strength and power to witness, people's hearts can be changed and they can turn around. God will provide what we need to share the gospel of Jesus Christ if we will patiently win them. And over the next, this Sunday and the next four weeks, we're gonna talk about rescuing the perishing. And to set the tone and the dynamic for that, I've asked for Tim Thomas to come and share that song. And I want you to not only worship, I want you to listen and think about the words that Fanny J. Crosby wrote that night that she had led a young man to the Lord in that New York City mission. Traditionally, historically in the evangelical church and a number of other churches as well, has been identified as back to church month. And basically it's built around the idea that during the summer, Christians have become lazy and have neglected their duty of assembling together and we need to call them back as well as others who have drifted from the faith. And was, we've done that in the past and we've celebrated that and encouraged people to come back. But this year, I felt like God put something a little different in my heart, and it grew out of a book that I've reading and scripture that says, Demas has forsaken me. One of the saddest verses that Paul writes is while he's in prison, he talks about a man that in other places was one of his co-laborers and respected friends. But he says, Demas has forsaken me having loved this present world. The New Living Translation says, he has deserted me. There have always been people that walk away from the faith, and by and large, the church has ignored them. We've extended evangelical outreach, the gospel message, to those that are lost and trying to touch them for the kingdom, and little is said about those who have wandered away. We're warned in Hebrews about drawing back and the implications of that on our lives. In Chapter 10, verses 38 and 39, the Bible says a righteous person will live by faith, but I, God, will have no pleasure in anyone who turns away. The author goes on to write, but we are not like those who turn their backs on God and seal their fate. We have faith that assures our salvation. The good news is that there are some who fall away that do come back. You'll remember the story of John Mark as he was traveling on that missionary journey and Partway through the journey, he wimps out. He becomes a snowflake and melts and goes back home to his mom. And later they want to bring him along. Barnabas wants to bring him on the next journey. And Paul says, it's not happening. And they parted company. And Paul went one direction and Barnabas went another way with John Mark. But at the end of Paul's life, he writes to Timothy, telling him, to bring John Mark, for he is profitable to me, to the ministry. John Mark who had walked away and said I can't do this comes to a place of rebuilding his faith and the Apostle Paul sees him as a man of God. There are categories that church, um, uh, those who study trends would talk to us about that I want you to consider just for a moment there are people who are unreached or underreached. And our missions uh, team has focused on that in our missions giving. If we're gonna spend money on missions and support missionaries, one of our priorities is to make sure the gospel is going to those who have never heard the unreached and underreached people groups around the world. Secondly, we deal with the unchurched. And the unchurched includes those who have simply walked away for some reason or another. Someone has hurt them, someone has offended them, they got out of the habit, COVID kept them at home, and they liked the casual atmosphere of their living room coffee, hot chocolate, slippers and a bathrobe while they watch the service. There are a number of reasons why people withdraw. Now, not everybody who joins online has that same mindset. Some can't come, some are in other places that join us, and we celebrate those, all of you that join us online, But some have just drifted away from the habit. They're no longer engaged, the unchurched. People who have never been reached by a church. In addition to that, the next level are those that are dechurched. They've left the church. They haven't just withdrawn. It's not that they've never been touched by a church, but they have a reason that they're not going back. They're no longer engaged. And the fourth category that I want you to think about for a Few moments is a growing category around the world and particularly in the United States called the deconstructed or the evangelical. There's an entire movement of evangelicalism, people that are walking away from the evangelical faith. Now, this term deconstruction gets used in a number of ways. There are some people that deconstruct their faith from the social. Um, demands of their faith. In other words, you have to sort out what is really God and what is just tradition. There's nothing wrong with that kind of deconstruction. But others go further than that. They're deconstructing the very foundation of their faith. They no longer believe in Jesus as the Son of God. They've torn it down and put it in some other category and probably one of the more famous proponents of deconstruction and evangelicalism is a man by the name of Joshua Harris. How many of you are old enough to remember the book, I Kissed Dating Goodbye? Oh, that was revolutionary. Now, I'm going to tell you that everybody bought that book. He became an instant bestseller. I think he was 12 when he wrote, no, I think he was like 19 when he wrote the book. And it came out of a frustration with current dating practices that take place outside the church and inside the church. And how many of you would be willing to admit that much that happens under the category of dating is unhealthy? (laughs) Come on. And he advocated that dating shouldn't be just a playful activity, that you spend time with someone, but that it heads there. And he recommended replacing dating with courting, that dating leads to marriage, and there should be an intentionality about that. And it swept the nation by storm. He was, a, he was the evangelical darling. He helped shape purity culture for many Christian millennials. He was lead pastor of Covenant Life Church, founding the Church of Sovereign Grace Ministries in Gaithersburg, Maryland from 2004 to 2015. But in 2018, after all of that took place, from 97 when he wrote the book and was pastoring and was the evangelical darling, in 2018, he discontinued the publication of I Kiss Dating Goodbye. Now that probably wasn't such a bad choice if you read the book but the following year he announced that he was separating from his wife had undergone a massive shift in regard to his faith in Jesus had given up his Christian faith and subsequently offered a course on deconstruction how you can get rid of your faith too. What causes that to happen? What causes someone who is so deeply ingrained in evangelical teaching and preaching and doctrine to somehow move to a place where now he sees it as all false and says, I no longer consider myself Christian. As of February 2022, there were 293,026 posts on Instagram utilizing the hashtag deconstruction. There is something happening in our culture and in our world that we can't afford to ignore. Not only do we need to reach those who have never heard, not do we also need to reach those that have never been touched by a church, Not only do we need to reach those that have been wounded and walked away, we need to reach those that have allowed the devil to rip away from them the core of their faith. Deep in the human heart lie feelings that have been crushed by the tempter. And my challenge to you is that we would begin to think about people we know that haven't just left the church out of convenience, or it's no longer a top priority for them because of life reasons. But I believe we're responsible as well to reach to those who are allowing their faith to be completely deconstructed and destroyed. And we need to provide an answer for that. And the platitudes of Christianity of a bygone era will no longer satisfy the questions of a generation that will not be satisfied with formula-based theology and simple platitudes to fill in the gaps. They want real answers that work every day. We struggle with some things. For instance, if I were to ask you, do you believe in divine healing? Oh, yes. And so we have those that are preaching and teaching that if you have faith and you fast and you do the right things, everyone will be healed. But it never works. And a generation is saying, I'm tired of your theology that doesn't answer where I live and doesn't work. How can you expect them to respect a Pentecostal charismatic culture that supports a man who preaches that the reason Jesus hasn't come back is because we've not given enough money. How does that person have any respect? I'm telling you, a younger generation says, if you wanna believe that, go ahead, but I can't, and I'm gonna deconstruct that foolishness the problem is when they begin to deconstruct and we don't have a landing place and answers to give them and we simply say just believe and don't doubt there's no landing place for them and it's time for us to be honest about our doubts come on our struggles our issues And find a Jesus who is not intimidated by the questions we ask and who has real answers to get us through this life journey. Come on, someone help me this morning. We need to be able to answer that. For the next four weeks, I'm going to answer some of those questions and equip you, I hope, to give an answer to those like that young man in that mission that Fanny Crosby talked to who said, I can't make it back. There's no place for me. Yes, there is. Yes, there is. Grace can restore. And we're responsible to see that happen. Do you know someone who has left the church and cast off their faith. We need to reach them as well, and not just simply assume that they can't be reached. Much of the source material for this sermon comes from a book by Wade Bearden written to my friend who left the faith, a letter from one prodigal to another, two young men that, men that grew up in an Assemblies of God environment, Assemblies of God churches, went to an Assemblies of God college and during their exchange, one begins to deconstruct the social constraints, constraints that, and constructs that went with his faith to separate those and the other who deconstructed and completely walked away. Bearden writes his book after his friend had committed suicide. What he would have said what he wished he had said. So there's some things that I want you to consider when we take the message of come back to church to those who are being destroyed by the devil. First thing that we don't often talk about is that scripture prophesies a coming apostasy. It prophesies a coming apostasy. Second Thessalonians 2 3 says, Don't let anyone deceive you in any way, for that day will not come until the rebellion occurs and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the man doomed to destruction. We want to we concentrate as we should on the victories and the healings and the wins. But we're told to not be deceived that while we get closer to the end, not only will the power of God be released supernaturally, there will be a growing deception and a growing walking away from the faith. And I'm convinced by what I'm seeing happening around us that the beginning of sorrows in that realm is upon us as we see something we've not seen in this fashion before. We ignore the coming apostasy. The periods of time that God has dealt in a unique way with mankind have always ended with some kind of an apostasy. The dispensations of God's dealing, for example, in the Garden of Eden, the time of innocence, how did that end? With Adam and Eve committing sin and being banished from the Garden. The period of conscience when God spoke to them following the... um, Following the banishment from the garden, how did that end? It ended with the flood when the thoughts of every man's heart was only evil continually. That followed a period of human government. How did human government end? It ended with the building of the Tower of Babel when God came down and dispersed the nations. When God has revealed himself to people, there's always along those lines those who respond and a growing rebellion against what God is doing in the world and the same is true you can look at the millennial kingdom that will end with a great war and rebellion and i'm absolutely convinced that before the lord returns apostasy will increase well what does it mean when it says that day will not come until the man of lawlessness is revealed I do not believe that we will go through the tribulation period, and I have a completely different eschatological uh, paradigm for understanding end-time events. But I'm telling you, I don't believe we're going to live under the rule of the Antichrist. But I do believe that those who are hearing the voice of God will recognize him before Jesus returns. There'll be a sense of something rising up here that has darkness and evil beyond what we've ever seen in government before. And the Bible says that the spirit of Antichrist is already at work in the world. That spirit is already here in 1 John chapter 4. Um, Every spirit that does not acknowledge that Jesus is not from God has the spirit of Antichrist. And in chapter 2, dear children, this is the last hour. Even now, many antichrists have come. This is how we know it's the last hour. So in the apostles' day, they recognized that this was the last days from the ascension and outpouring of Pentecost that we're living in what Scripture calls the last days. And we tend to view that like, well, when will the last days come? We're in them. This is the last dealing of God with mankind before he sets up the millennial kingdom and then results in the destruction of heaven and earth and a new heaven and earth will be created. These are the last days. And I believe that the devil is using some weapons of mass destruction against our culture. And I want to just identify a few of those for a moment this morning. This apostasy will increase. How? It will increase with deception. In 1 John chapter 4, we're warned of the deception that will come to not be deceived. In um, 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, not only will there be a deception that deceives the world, there is this rejection of truth. The coming of the lawless one will be in accordance with the work of Satan, displayed in all kinds of counterfeit miracles, signs, and wonders, and in every sort of evil that deceives those who are perishing. The They perish because they refuse to love the truth and so be saved for this reason God sends them a powerful delusion so that they will believe a lie and be condemned. Listen to the media. Listen to what's happening around us. There is a disdain for what is true. There's a rejection that there is anything that is true, and the Bible warns that when you know the truth and have loved the truth, that it is a dangerous thing to reject that, and the devil is trying to tear that down in every way that he can. There's a wave of deception. There's a growing. Rejection of truth. There's an abounding of iniquity. Matthew chapter 24, because of the increase of wickedness, the love of many will grow cold. And you watch that happening as sin abounds, as people are turning to things that at one time we would have never, ever tolerated in the confines of Christian faith are now not only being tolerated, but being endorsed. And if you look at church history, you will see that what one generation generation tolerates, the next generation openly practices, and when a church that names the name of Christ can have a women's event and bring in a celebrity called the naked cowboy, and there is not a huge outrage over that, I'm telling you that the abounding of iniquity is causing the love of many to wax cold, and it's influencing the church today. Fourth weapon of mass destruction that's Hitting the church with full force is a love for the world. Do not love the world or anything in the world. If any man loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. So there's this whole construct of loving the world. I mean, what's happened in the prosperity message? I believe that God wants to bless you. I believe he wants to open the windows of heaven. I believe he wants to heal you. I believe he wants to prosper you. I pray that you'll, be a, um, that you're, you'll prosper and be in health even as your soul prospers. Yes, I believe in all of that. But there's a sneaky weapon attached to that that when God begins to prosper us, we fall in love with the prosperity rather than the one who has prospered. And when that happens, our faith will collapse. There are others that you might identify or, or, or describe, but the Bible tells us that there's a releasing of weapons of mass destruction that will result in a biblically prophesied apostasy. So we can decide to simply sit back and say, I can't do anything about it or we can fulfill our biblical calling and put on our armor and war against it until Jesus comes. Because the Bible also promises a worldwide revival. Now, I'm going to say something here that you may not agree with, and that's totally fine. But don't write to me about it. I already have my mind made up. Conventional, conventional eschatology teaches us that the tribulation ends... Or begins, I'm sorry, when the Lamb opens the first seal. I reject that because at the opening of the first seal, the Bible describes something different than that. It describes a rider on a white horse I looked up and saw a white horse, its rider carried a bow, and a crown was placed on his head, and he rode out to win many battles and gain victory. Now, without digging really deep into eschatology, let me just tell you how you need to understand the book of Revelation it's not a chronology for us to predict when Jesus will come. It's a revelation of Jesus Christ and a picture of his ministry on the earth and among us until he returns. And I believe what we're being shown in the book of Revelation with the rider of the white horse is not the Antichrist as many prophecy teachers proclaim. I don't believe the Antichrist is given a crown. I don't believe that the Antichrist is riding a white horse. I don't believe he's been given a bow, and it's significant that the bow is without arrows. And I'm telling you that we're told in the New Testament that our weaponry is not carnal, but is mighty through God to the pulling down of strongholds. And I'm telling you that we are more than conquerors through him that loved us, and that greater is he that is in us than he that is in the world, that we're overcomers, and that white horse paints a picture for the end of time that Jesus has released the church to gallop through the land, proclaiming the gospel, wearing the crown of the kingdom and carrying the bow of authority and riding in purity so that there is a clear message to a world that Jesus died for their sins and every dispensation of God's dealing, there has always been a clear message of Redemption, and I'm absolutely convinced that the rider on the white horse is God proclaiming that in these end times there will be a triumphant church that will ride in victory and tear down the works of the enemy. Jesus said, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. The promise in the book of Acts concerns the last days. No, what you see this morning was predicted centuries ago by the prophet Joel. In the last days God says, I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your young men will see visions. Your old men will dream dreams. In those days I'll pour my spirit on all my servants men and women alike and they will prophesy. I will cause wonder in the heavens above, signs in the earth below. Blood, fire, clouds of smoke, the sun turned to darkness, the moon to blood. Before that great and glorious day of the Lord arrives and anyone who calls to the name of the Lord will be saved. When is that happening? In the last days. When did the last days begin? When the Holy Spirit was outpoured. It's happening now. I'm telling you around the world take the blinders off. Quit looking at downtown and look what God is doing around the world. There is a massive wave of revival in nations that are open to the moving of the Spirit of God. God is doing things in places in our own land as Christianity continues to grow beyond the population rate of our world as men and women, boys and girls are coming to faith in Jesus Christ. These are the days that Joel prophesied about. And God is pouring his spirit out on all flesh. And I want to be part of that. I don't know about you, but I want to be part of that outpouring. There's a prophesied, a promised worldwide revival. I get emotional every time I read this. The great throng around the throne. They they sang a new song with these words. You are worthy to take the scroll and break the seals and open it, for you were killed and your blood has ransomed people from God, from every tribe, nation, and people. You have caused them to become God's kingdom and his priests and they will reign on the earth. Then I looked and I heard the singing of thousands and millions of angels around the throne and the living beings and the elders and they sang in a mighty chorus, the lamb is worthy and the lamb who is killed, who is worthy to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing, a number that no man could number with the saints of all ages gathered around the throne. I'm telling you that he's going to bring forth the church out of every people, kindred, tribe, and tongue. And when he says that this gospel of the kingdom must be preached to all nations, he does not mean it's got to be preached to Germany and it's got to be preached to Croatia and it has to be preached to Chile. That word nations is ethne, ethne. That every people group on the planet will have within their people group a message of the gospel that's relevant to them that they can understand, that they can respond to. Before Jesus comes, he's not looking for how much we put in the coffers. He's looking for how well we have preached the gospel to all of the people groups on the planet. They will all have a clear, articulated message that they can respond to before Jesus comes back again. This gospel shall be preached in all the world, to all nations, and then will the end come. Let me tell you what I know about religious faith, Christianity in our world today. This is according to Lifeway researchers in 2022, this year. Religious faith is growing faster than the irreligious. Globally, The number of religious people is growing at a rate higher than the population rate and double the growth of the irreligious. 2.65 billion people will identify as Christian by the middle of 2022, and by 2050, that number is expected to top 3.3 billion. In 1990, 95% of all Christians lived in a majority Christian country. Now listen to this. In 1900, 95% of all Christians lived in countries that had a majority of Christianity. In 2022, that number has fallen to 53%. What does that mean? It means that 47% of believers are no longer living in the safety of a Christian nation. But in places where Christianity is not the majority, more and more Christians are rising up, being reached for the kingdom, and we're influencing un-Christian, non-Christian nations around the globe at an increasing rate. By 2050, most Christians, 50% of Christians around the world will live in a non-majority Christian nation. What does that mean? It means that this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in all nations, then will the end come. And Christianity is no longer confined to safe places, but it's in dangerous places. It's in places that we can't even talk about publicly about missionaries that are there. And I'm telling you that in places where the gospel has never been preached, the church is being established and believers are rising up, and lives are being changed in spite of the apostasy. The percentage of non-Christians who know a Christian is climbing. The more Christians living outside Christian nations, more non-Christians know a Christian. In 1900, listen to this, only 5% of non-Christians could identify a Christian that they knew worldwide in 1900. Only 5% could identify a Christian that they knew. That percentage has risen to 18.3% today. By 2050, it is estimated that 20% of unreached people will have known a follower of Jesus and have the opportunity to hear the gospel from them. Yes, there is a prophesied apostasy, but no church, we don't have to surrender to that because there's a promise of the proclamation of the gospel. This world will be reached and God is raising up his church in places where the church has never existed before. So that leaves us with this. We have a personal responsibility. Matthew 28, 18 to 20 tells us to go to the world and preach the gospel to every creature. <laughs> We're to take the gospel to everyone everywhere, personally engaging lost people in all kinds of lost people in all kinds of places. We're to go everywhere. And I know you may not be called to go to some long, far foreign country, but I, I'm just gonna say what's on my heart. Don't tell me you're passionate about reaching for the lost if you don't give to missions. And don't tell me you're passionate about reaching the lost if you never share your faith with an unbeliever. If you don't care, you say, well, I don't have opportunity. Oh, they're all around you. Open your ears. Open your eyes. There's an opportunity to bump someone closer to the kingdom. You don't have to grab them, twist their arm behind their back and slam them to the ground and say, I'll let you up when you pray the sinner's prayer. You might just nudge them a little closer, sharing your faith, sharing a word of encouragement, being a blessing. You don't know what might happen later down the road as they hear people moving them toward Christ. The Bible says in Acts chapter 1 verse 8, that the power of pentecost isn't for the worship service. <laughs> Who preach now pastor? I will. Looks like everybody else got off the train. <laughs> you will receive power after that the holy spirit has come upon you. And you will have the most exciting service in town. You will have signs and wonders around the altar. People will come and be in awe. You will receive power after the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be witnesses unto me, both, both, at the same time, in Jerusalem, in Judea, in Samaria, and unto the outermost parts of the earth, people that are genuinely spirit-filled have a fire burning on the inside of them to share their faith with people that don't know Jesus. I, I probably shouldn't share this. I don't remember who said it to me, but I'm going to someone asked me the other day, why do you keep saying you probably shouldn't share it and do it anyway? Because I know when I say I probably shouldn't share it, everybody goes, what's he saying? <laughs> we hadn't been here very long and Someone came up to me and said, what about the utterance gifts in the service? God uses me in messages in tongues. And I said, well, let me ask you another question. When was the last time that you shared your faith with an unbeliever? Last month? No. Last year? No, I don't remember when. Then you are misusing the gifts. And I'm not giving you freedom to operate in a pseudo-spiritual platform here when you're not using it the way that it was called and identified to be used. When you start sharing your faith with lost people, come back and talk to me about the gifts. Come on. We seem to be unconcerned about what the gifts are really for as long as somebody talks in tongues. It's not about the gift. It's not about that experience by itself. It's about an empowerment for mission. And if you are genuinely Spirit-filled, not only will you speak in another language, yes, God wants that for you, and yes, it will build you up, but there'll be something on the inside of you that burns like a fire for men, women, boys and girls that are far from God that need to hear the gospel message somewhere along the line, you won't use social media to blast people. You won't stand in line to curse somebody. You'll see every opportunity in business and where you travel and what you post and what you say will be an opportunity to tell someone about how good Jesus is and what he can do. Come on, somebody help me this morning. I'm telling you that that's what the Holy Spirit came to do is to point to Jesus. We have a personal responsibility. I'm worried that sometimes the of God churches are guilty of having a name over their door that they live but are dead because it's not enough to say we're Pentecostal unless on a regular basis men, women, boys, and girls are coming to faith in Jesus Christ. That's the measuring rod. Are we reaching people for the kingdom? We have a personal responsibility. I'm going to say it this way as Pastor Nathan comes. The Bible says in 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 15, to be ready always to give an answer to every man that asks you a reason of the hope that's in you with meekness and fear. I'm gonna tell you that I never have stepped up to preach without preparing what I'm going to say, prepared to give an answer. Now, there are times I've had more opportunity to prepare than others. I remember the Sunday that we had a guest speaker that didn't show up and I had about 45 minutes to put a message together and God helped me, but he's never done that to me when I've had time. So if I just said, hey, I'm just going to see what God says. I'll just open my mouth and God will fill it. How many of you expect that I would come prepared to give an answer? (laughs) Three of you. Wow, preaching just got easier. How many of you expect me to come prepared to give an answer? Come on, it's all right. If you don't expect it, I'm gonna quit doing it. I'm just, I'll go fishing on Saturday. The same truth is, have you ever thought for a moment about what you would say to someone who didn't know Jesus? Have you ever pondered it at all? If I met someone like this, or like this, or like this, You say, well, the Bible says to take no thought what you'll speak. Read the whole Bible. When you're called before authorities who are attacking you for your faith, don't worry about it because in that moment, it'll be given you and you'll speak words of authority. But when it's dealing with the lost, be ready always to give an answer to everyone that asks you, when was the last time you thought about how you would share your faith? We're not reaching them because we're not prepared and I'm not gonna give you a seminar this morning, I just wanna build a fire. God, what would I say? How would I explain my faith? How would I encourage someone else to explain to them how Jesus means so much to me? In Hosea chapter 14, verse two, when the nation is called to repentance, the prophet says, take with you words and turn back to the Lord. That's what that verse means. I'm gonna take it a little bit out of context, but I want you to know that because that verse applies to me in a different way. If it's important, listen to me, if it's important to think about what you're going to say when you repent and come to Jesus, and so you take with you words, it seems to me that it would be equally important to take words with me to people that need to repent. That I need to, if they need to, surely I need to as well. I've got words, I've got a plan, Will it ever fit your plan? Probably not, but you'll be prepared and pieces will rise up in that moment. Do you have any idea what you would say? We have a personal responsibility. I've told this story and I'm trying to end. I've told the story before, but it was so challenging to me that when Tiffany was just a little girl and I don't know, first, second grade, something like that, she came in the house, she said, "'Dad, I need a Bible. "'Why do you need a Bible?' because I've met a friend at school that doesn't know Jesus and she lives right up the hill and I'm gonna go up there and lead her to Jesus. Go for it. Gave her a Bible, she went up the hill, led that little girl to Jesus, came back. She said, another, I need another one. I said, what, why do you need another one? Because her mom doesn't know Jesus either. So she went up the hill to get mom, didn't come back victorious. <laughs> but she said, doesn't the Bible tell us that we should go into all the world Yes? Then why don't we get a bus? What are we doing here? Great thought, great challenge. But I'd say to you, listen, those of you that are here, Jake and Vanessa's world, Johnson, Jake and Vanessa, their world's in Botswana. The Benders have a world they've been assigned. The missionaries we support, Have a world they've been assigned to. Do you know what world you've been assigned to? To take the gospel to the world is the world where you're currently living. Take with you words. Be prepared. What would you say? And I hope over the next few weeks to give you some answers, but this morning somehow, if I could put a fire under your chair, I would that would say, dear God, I will not rest until I have words ready to fight the coming apostasy, and stand on the promised promise of revival that you have given us, because I'm gonna own my personal responsibility to go into my world and take the gospel to every nation. Let's stand together. Would you just open your heart and let God speak to you as we together seek his face, that we might be a place where the perishing are rescued open your heart
1: I'm so unworthy but still you love me I'm captivated by your I surrender now forever, my heart is yours, I'm so unworthy, I'll sing that out, still you love, but still you. TV. Yes, I am Jesus.
0: that you'll put a burden in our hearts for those who have lost their way and that you'll help us to be ready to give an answer to those you send across our path. And we will be looking for them. We will be expecting them because we're prepared with a word from you. In your name we pray and everyone that loves him said, Amen. If you're glad for Jesus, let me hear your hands this morning. God bless you. Thank you so much for your faithful financial support. Really do appreciate that. And secondly, if, you're, if this is the Sunday to begin signing for Connect Groups, we'd like all of you to be connected with other members of the body. Take time to do that. And then be ready. Be ready to give an answer. Amen. God bless.